Hello, Case Confirmed listeners. You're with Mira and Dina on this episode of Case Confirmed. We interviewed emergency room physician Dr. Alistair Martin. Besides being a hero on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, he's also faculty at the MGH Center for Social Justice and Health Equity. On this episode, we talked to him about voting during a pandemic and his project, VoteR, which enables voter registration from emergency rooms nationwide. VoteR is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization with the goal of providing patients the opportunity to register to vote from emergency rooms because much of our healthcare system and healthcare experiences are determined by the policies that our elected officials implement. Alistair! Hey, how you doing? Hi, good, good. Thanks so much for making this work. Of course, of course. Yeah, so Alistair, Mira, Mira, this is Alistair. Hi, nice to meet you over the <laughs> over the sound. Thanks. Thanks for doing the podcast with us. Really excited to have you as a guest. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Alistair, I am so, so excited to have you um, on today for the episode. For our listeners, um, I met Alistair this past year as part of a fellowship called New Leaders Council. Shout out to the Boston chapter. And I first learned about Vote ER. I think it was our second session in during a fellow-led presentation that Alistair gifted cohort on this initiative. He was only then in you know January, February, kind of just starting to roll out. And it's come such a far way now that here we are um, just a little over three weeks before the election. So super excited to have you. Thank you for uh, making the time and uh, thank you for contributing back then and now. Yeah, no, of course. So why did you decide to go into emergency medicine specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, my choice of specialty really had a lot to do with my experience growing up. So I grew up in a low-income community uh, in the middle of New Jersey, a majority minority community that has some of the same struggles that, you know, low-income communities have across this country, you know, poor schooling, uh, limited access to healthy food options, folks who have either difficulty getting insurance, health insurance, or who are underinsured. And when uh, I needed to be evaluated, you know, for, you know, health things that came up as a kid, often my mom, you know, working two jobs, coming home at 8 p.m., didn't have time to uh, get us to the pediatrician. Or uh, there were other times where we, you know, struggled with you know, having stable health insurance. And so getting into sort of the traditional pathways of accessing healthcare were not as easy for us. So we went to the emergency room, just like many other patients from low-income communities do, uh, based on the data that we have. Over 40% of the patients who, you know, we see in ERs across the country are folks who predominantly are there because of primary care issues, um, issues that could have been dealt with in some other uh, setting. And so my experience taught me that ERs play a sort of outsized role in the lives of uh, patients who have difficulty accessing the healthcare system. Um, they don't ask any questions about insurance or ability to pay. They're always open. Uh, it's convenient. And so I realized that by becoming an ER doctor, I could you know, be there at the worst moments for people when they're struggling with emergencies. But also I realized that I could be there as the embodiment of the social safety net for folks who don't have anywhere else to go. That's great. That's really powerful. Even for myself, I know um, my family has definitely used that as a healthcare safety net when I was growing up. So, I mean, I also know firsthand how, how real that is. 
um, the emergency room should only be for emergencies and not not just end up being this kind of safety net last resort that it is for so many folks in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Can you describe to our listeners what Vote ER exactly is, what the process has been to get it up and running, and what the motive behind it was? Yeah. So first, let's start with the problem that we were trying to solve. So in this country, we have over 50 million people who are not registered to vote. And when you look at the data in terms of demographically speaking, who is most likely to not be registered to vote, there are three main groups, young people, low-income Americans, and people of color in this country. It turns out that those are the same three exact groups that um, used ERs and other social safety net institutions to get health care. They show up at ERs, community health centers, free, free care clinics um, at higher rates than other populations. And so the idea was relatively straightforward. Why not, given that there's a demographic overlap, given that those 50 million folks who are not registered to vote often are sitting in my ER for six hours with no emergency, why not use that downtime to offer people uh, the opportunity to register to vote. Um, and so that was sort of the the beginning of the idea. We had begun um, sort of creating our initial foundation for this work about a year and a half to two years ago and launched our first pilot at National Hospital in, um, in uh, October of last year, 2019. And, you know, initially the pilot was all about how do we offer, you know, a um, platform that is non-interruptive, ER docs, nurses, uh, technicians, they have a, they have a job that, um, you know, really needs to be prioritized, which is taking care of patients from a medical perspective. That's their first job. So it had to be non-interruptive. Number two, it had to be non-coercive. Patients should be able to opt into it, choose to do it if they want to. And then three, it absolutely had to be nonpartisan. And so initially we launched a program at Mass General that had kiosks, posters, discharge paperwork, all with, you know, the kiosks are relatively self-explanatory. Patients go up to it. They can uh, register to vote. There's an iPad in the kiosk and they can register to vote or get their mail-in ballot via that um, kiosk. The posters and discharge paperwork had QR codes and text message short codes that patients could use to initiate the voter registration process on their own phone. And so, you know, there aren't any doctors or nurses walking around with like clipboards registering people to vote on paper. Uh, This is all patients Mm -hmm. registering themselves using their phones. Um, And so that was sort of where we started. So how has COVID impacted the rolling out of VoteR? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, the the initial model was all about creating these kiosks that we would deploy to hospitals and ERs around the country. Well, when COVID hit, these decision makers, these key leaders like chair chair men and chair women of departments, uh, medical directors, had other concerns. They had other things that they were worried about, rightly so. Finding a model that was 10 times more successful that superseded putting uh, a voter registration kiosk in their waiting room. And so, you know, we were absolutely sensitive to that and, and also realized that we had a decision to make. The decision was, uh, COVID is here. Everything is sort of, sort of coming to a grinding halt. Do we stop what we're doing? Or is this the very reason that we need to dig our heels in and do this work? Is COVID not just sort of pulling the uh, the cover off of you know what what is quite frankly 
for folks who work in the healthcare system, obvious healthcare disparities, uh, but for everyone else, really allowing them to see for the first time truly the magnitude of uh, the differences in our healthcare system. And so, you know, we decided to, when COVID hit, change our model because we had physicians all across this country and nurses and other healthcare providers asking us, look, I'm upset. I'm angry. Um, I, I am frustrated. And I want to do something. I want to do something more than just post on Twitter or, uh, you know, make a, an Instagram uh, hashtag. What can I do? Your kiosks are great, but that doesn't really help me. And so we had to figure out how to mm-hmm. shrink the, the um, intervention down to an individual size. And so we shifted. We created these things called healthy democracy kits, which are basically a lanyard that physicians wear. It's a very bold uh, lettering that says register to vote on it. So it's very obvious. And patients often, like, I, like they did last night, one of the patients asked me on my ER shift, why does your lanyard say register to vote on it? And then I would say, well, it says register to vote on it because, and then I would show them the second part of the Healthy Democracy Kit, which is a badge backer. It's a big uh, plastic badge that goes behind my ID. And it, and it has a QR code and a text message code the patients can use to register themselves to vote. So like what happened last night, patient asked me about my, my lanyard and I said, yeah, if you're interested, you can use this. Uh, and I showed them my badge uh, and I said, look, you can text this code or use this QR code to make sure you are registered to vote in the upcoming election. We now have 25,000 physicians, nurses, medical students, and other healthcare providers who have one of those badges. Wow, yeah. that's great. And they in total have gotten about 43,000 people either to start the voter registration process or the mail-in ballot process. Wow. That's amazing. amazing. Absolutely amazing. And how did it, how did it scale up to that? Was it just reaching out to hospitals, doctors, other healthcare staff? Like how, how did we get to, you know, 25,000 plus uh, healthcare workers using this and over 40,000 newly registered voters? Yeah. It's really, really, really simple. And it's two words, relational organizing. Uh, You know, initially it started with me reaching out to my own network, you know, through my alumni network uh, in medical school and residency to chairs of departments across the country who were, you know, who I knew had interest in this intersection between health and civic engagement. They, in turn, I asked them, you know, who are three other people who you would then recruit and bring in? Those next groups of three then asked another group, you know, who are three other folks that you would bring? And so a lot of this was very much word of mouth. Um, and so that was the first piece was um, the relational organizing piece of friends telling friends about VODR and getting these kits out there. The second was we leveraged social norms. And, you know, if you look at our Twitter feed, you know, what you'll see is hundreds, if not thousands of physicians and nurses and healthcare providers who are all showing what it looks like to be in the hospital with one of these kits, right? And, and so if you were someone who's on the fence, uh, you see, you know, you, you, what you effectively are seeing is a, a deluge of images uh, that demonstrate that physicians who really care and healthcare providers who really care, they go the extra mile and make sure that we not only help our patients inside the hospital and help heal them while they're here, but also make sure that they have what they need for 
um, you know, appropriate healthcare to be delivered in the in the outpatient setting back home. The things that make up the social determinants of health, and by and large, um, all of those things are influenced by you know healthcare policy and upstream consequences of voting. And so that would that's the sort of second thing is on you know social media and Twitter and Instagram. We had a lot of physicians sort of showing pictures of them using this, and it looked like others were doing it. And so I think a lot of folks caught on that way. Amazing. That's, I think, a really perfect example of snowflake model of organizing where kind of how you said it's like, you know, you reach out to two or three friends, they reach out to two or three. And then by the time you know it, you're in the tens and thousands, especially when it's genuinely a really good idea, a really needed idea and something that really is a potential to take off like I think VoteR has and and yeah. On the flip side, I'm curious, has there, have you encountered or any of your colleagues encountered any pushback, maybe from hospital administrators or um, other providers? So it's actually been very, very surprising. We, we expected a lot of pushback. We expected this, you know, when we first started back in October, you know, we expected this, this to be a very rocky sort of rollout. And we've been very presently and pleasantly surprised, quite frankly. I think the things that have made it um, uh, hard right now to push back against this are two. Number one, uh, COVID has made voting a public health issue. When you think about who is, um, you know, out there traditionally speaking, you know, as a, as election officials or as poll workers, these are folks who are over the age of sixty-five. The prime folks that you do not want out there um, during a pandemic. When you think about folks who are, you know, having to decide how they are going to vote, every individual has to now make a decision. What is the appropriate level of risk that I'm willing to, you know, sort of incur to 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 make my voice heard? Do I want to vote by mail? Do I want to go out in person, do early voting? Do I want to vote on election day? And so, and and then lastly, when you look at voter registration rates across this country, because we've limited in-person gatherings, because we've limited sort of uh, the traditional places where people get registered to vote, like Ben's, uh, the DMV in a lot of places has been either closed for parts of this year or or by um, appointment only. And so for these reasons, um, COVID has really impacted the traditional process of getting ready to vote in a, in a major election um, and has made it a public health issue. So given that, who better than healthcare providers to speak on the issue of public health. And so I think that's the first thing that has made it very difficult for folks to, you know, sort of push back on on the idea of voter registration in healthcare settings. I think the second is, um, you know, what we saw after George Floyd uh, was murdered. You know, our country entered into a, a, um, a my hope is a sustained period of, um, you know, sort of uh, dialogue around previous racial injustices, our relationship with police brutality, you know, against black men and women in this country and people of color in this country. And hospitals all across this country were looking for tangible, concrete ways to engage in non-optical allyship. How could they make an impact on these issues of racism in our country, of discrimination in our country, that are more than just sending an email about, you know, our support for Black Lives Matter? I think this gave them a very straightforward and concrete way uh, to do to to do something around health equity. So those those two things made it hard to push back uh, against this. I, I would say that all that being said, the number one concern that we've heard 
is healthcare providers feeling like they don't want to make things political in the exam room? And, you know, our answer to that is healthcare is political. And there's a difference between being political and being partisan. And, uh, you know, healthcare providers have to acknowledge and uh, grapple with the politics of the healthcare that they deliver to their patients. And without doing so, unfortunately, you know, we live in a country where if you're not at the table making, uh, helping to make these decisions, you're on the menu, politically speaking. That's really brilliant to comment on. It's it's really sad that the people that are most affected by this pandemic, the people with chronic conditions and older people, are probably the least likely to vote this year, as you said, because of constraints, maybe not willing to, not being able to go to the polls or, you know, if they're older, even an online voting, you know, system might be sort of outside the scope of someone's uh, visual abilities, for example. So I think that you're providing a very, very important opportunity for people. And I think that that's really great. Thank you. Yeah. And, and also speaking to your last point, making it just very clear and kind of bursting that, that bubble, bursting that illusion that as a clinician, you know, you're not practicing in a bubble. Healthcare is absolutely political. And it, I mean, even, even right now with, we're seeing, you know, threats to the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and, you know, who knows what the future of it is going to be after the election, which has implications, you know, for tens of millions around the country. I think, you know, Mir and I both as, you know, public health people that have worked with clinicians, it can, I, I've definitely worked with clinicians before that do draw this very clear, hard, hard boundary between, you know, their practice and politics and just will never um, just, it's something that they feel like they can't cross. But I, I really appreciate how you put it, that you can acknowledge that healthcare is politicized without being partisan. You know, you can encourage somebody to vote or to register to vote, but without telling them like, and you're going to fill in this bubble on the ballot, um, which obviously, you know, would be, would be inappropriate. So no, I, I, I think that's a very important distinction to make clear. And it's one that I hope um, more clinicians who are, you know, maybe on the fence about something like this or about discussing politics in any capacity with their patients can see that you can do it in a respectful, tactful, um, appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, throughout this pandemic, I think we've been hearing a little bit too much from politicians about their opinions on how COVID will play out and not so much not as much airtime has really been given to physicians and epidemiologists and people who are probably most qualified to talk about it or people on the front lines. So if anything, I think that politicians perhaps need some humility about their role in this crisis and should be consulting people that are in the medical field about how they should proceed in terms of especially the amount of myth-making and, and things like that that have sort of emerged from this pandemic. It's been a bit of a crisis in terms of health communications as well. You know, clinicians and, and epidemiologists and scientists are the people that are really are guiding light throughout this crisis and a little bit too much attention, media attention has been given on what politicians have been saying right, about COVID right. one way or Got another. You. All right, Alistair. I know we're coming to the end of our time. For any of our listeners who want to learn more about Vote ER, what are the best platforms for them to engage? Yep. So, you know, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do that on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is VOT underscore ER underscore ORG. If instead you want to um, transition into action, there are many, many, many ways to do that. 
this is open to you know all healthcare providers, public health officials, you know, epidemiologists. We welcome all. You can get your own free healthy democracy kit uh, by going to our website. That's vot-er.org/kit. The only thing I'll say about that is that that'll take some time to uh, ship. So if you want to get started right away, uh, we have a separate digital kit that you can use tonight to start getting folks ready to vote. Um, and that's at vot-er.org slash final dash stretch. Um, and so that's a, um, a kit that you can start using right away until your, your real kit arrives. So that's all. Amazing. Thank you, Alistair. Again, so, so happy for you just to see how, how much traction this has gained, you know, since the beginning of our fellowship earlier this year, and really just at such a timely moment with the pandemic and the election coming up. As excited as I am for VoteR, I really hope, you know, in the future we can build a country where it's not needed. Yes. Um, but, you know, until we're there, this is, this is really amazing work. Um, so thank you so much for everything. Thank you all. Great. Thank Thanks, you Alistair. Again. Take care. Of course.